Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and it is great to be with you. If you are a guest or a visitor, I do want to say welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning as we uh, worship our God and sing praise to him and as we come to his word. And the portion of his word that we're going to be looking at this morning is found in the book of James, uh, James chapter 2. So it's found near the back of your Bibles, uh, right before 1 Peter and after Hebrews. Uh, the passage is also found on page 1012 of the Bibles in the chair in front of you. Um, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If, if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, uh, we, we here believe that the Bible is God's very word. And because of that, we think it's the most important word for us to have. And so if you don't have a Bible, just take that one in the chair in front of you. That's our gift to you. Uh, no questions asked. Just walk out right with it, and it is yours. Uh, we, we want you to have a copy of God's Word because it is the very Word of life. And this morning, we're looking at a portion of His Word that is found in James 2, verses 14 through 26. 14 through 26. And this, this section of James is really the theological center of the entire letter. It's the theological center of the book because in this portion, uh, James is telling us what true and authentic faith look like. That true and authentic faith is going to produce something in us. It's going to produce works and deeds. It's going to produce a response. And that's what he's going to tell us here. He's going to challenge some of the notions that, that definitely modern Christians or mo the modern world can sometimes experience. The notion that that's simply faith. Faith alone is enough. James is going to challenge that idea. And so let's go ahead and read James 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we do thank you for this portion of your word. And we ask that as we come to it, that you would help us to navigate through it, that we would understand it and we would see as you see, that we would hear your word truthfully, and that we would follow you in all the ways that you lead us. And so, Father, I am in need of your help this morning so that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. And we are all in need of your help so that the meditations of our hearts would give you glory. And so we pray that you would help us. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. 
So not only is this section of James the theological center of the entire letter, but it's also the most debated portion of the letter as well. Um, if you're familiar with any of the uh, debates that have uh, ensued throughout church history, this is one of them. It centers around this passage and how we are to understand what James is discussing in regards to our faith and our works. How these two things coincide with one another. How do they operate? I mean, we heard it in verse 24, right? He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, at first glance, upon first hearing that, that might not seem to be any problem at all for us, right? Okay, so faith alone doesn't save us. Works justify us. But, but if you've read over the scriptures, and if you're familiar with the New Testament, and particularly the writings of Paul, then, then this can cause a little bit of consternation, can't it? Because we hear the language of Paul, and he talks about justified by faith alone, by grace alone, right? These beautiful principles that the Reformation adhered to, right? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, that we are not saved by our works. I mean, even our assurance of pardon this morning, we heard these words declared over us after we confessed our faith, after we confessed that, that we have rebelled against God, we heard these beautiful words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Or we could turn to Romans chapter 3, and we hear there Paul say, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You know, now it would seem like James and Paul are contradicting each other, wouldn't it? I mean, it sounds like they're saying completely opposite things. Paul's saying, you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace through faith. But James is saying, you are justified by your works. So which is it? How are we to understand this? Well, I want you to think about it like this. So when I was in college, I forget when exactly, I, got, I had the opportunity to meet Bobby Richardson. Now, Bobby Richardson, for some of you, means nothing, but if you are a baseball fan from the 1950s and 60s, you know exactly who Bobby Richardson is. Because Bobby Richardson was the second baseman for the New York Yankees from 1955 to 1966. He was a three-time World Series champion. He was a World Series MVP. In fact, he is the only World Series MVP to get the MVP award for a team that lost the World Series. That's how great of a series he had. Okay, Bobby Richardson was a five-time Gold Glove Award winner, and he played with Mickey Mantle, and I got to meet him. I actually got to go to his house because a friend of mine in college was a distant relative of Bobby's, and so we went to Sumter, South Carolina, and I got to sit in his living room and shake his hand, and he gave me a ball and a photo signed by him. It was awesome. I mean, I got to ask him about Mickey Mantle and his relationship with Mantle. And I mean, it was one, if you're a baseball fan, this is like, man, this is the best day of your life. Maybe not the best day of your life, but it's pretty good. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there talking with Bobby. But I remember before I got to talk to Bobby, there was another man who was there. But he wasn't there to shake his hand and to hear our stories about Mantle or Barra or Maris. He was there to, to have a transaction with Bobby. You see, Bobby, because he played with Yogi Berra and Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle, he had all sorts of memorabilia. And on that day, he was selling a bat signed by Mi Mickey Mantle to this man, okay? And so this man, he hands over the check, and Bobby hands over the bat. And then Bobby, before the man leaves, he hands him another piece of paper. But before he hands him the piece of paper, he reads from it, and it said something along the lines of, I, Bobby Richardson, swear that I witnessed Mickey Mantle sign this bat on this date in this place around this time. 
And then he signed it and he dated it and he handed it to the man. Right? It's a certificate of authenticity. A certificate of authenticity, it, it proves to the person who has the bat and has that certificate that that signature is true, that it is real, that it is not a forgery. And when he will go to sell that bat one day, he'll present that certificate of authenticity to prove what it really is, that it truly is Mickey Mantle's bat. And I was thinking about that. You know, before Bobby signed that piece of paper and handed it over to him, it, it was already Mickey Mantle's signature. Like, the certificate of authenticity didn't make that signature Mickey Mantle's. It proved that it was Mickey Mantle's. It authenticated the truthfulness when he said it was Mickey Mantle's. And that's what James is telling us our works do. You see, that's what James is telling us our works do. You see, when James says that our works justify us, he's not using justify in the way that Paul often does. You see, Paul talks about justification in the sense that we are declared innocent or we are declared righteous, but, but we all know that words have a broad meaning, right? They, they're not just oftentimes just singular in their meaning, but they can have differing meanings, and James is saying when he says we are justified by our works, he's not using it in the sense of declare innocent or righteous. He's saying that we are vindicated or our works authenticate our faith. You see, James isn't saying that works earn God's favor or merit his love. They prove our faith and show that we have experienced God's love. They are the certificate of authenticity that says we have true faith. And that's what James is telling us in this passage. He's telling us what authentic faith looks like. But before he tells us what authentic faith is going to look like, he actually tells us what inauthentic faith looks like. So that's what I want us to see. I want us to look at inauthentic faith and authentic faith. And the inauthentic faith, James is challenging our understanding of the Christian life that says all we have to do is believe. You see it in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, this rhetorical question in the original Greek, it's structured in such a way so that the original audience, the hearer, would have known what the answer was, right? It's, it's not debatable. Can this faith save you? What good is it? The answer is no, it can't save. That's how it's structured. And the reason why I can't save is because what James says in verse 17 and 26, that faith by itself, apart from works, is dead faith. In verse 20, he says that kind of faith is useless. And just in case we're still confused, in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one? That is well, you do well. But even the demons believe, and they shudder. Okay, let's think about that for a second. So that language, the Lord is one, God is one. So to the original Jewish audience, when they heard that, it would have made them think of Deuteronomy 6, which is the Shema. So that's, uh, the Shema is uh, what we call Deuteronomy 6. It's, it's, the, um, it's the creedal statement of Israel. And it begins, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. You shall keep these words on your lips at all times. You shall say them when you rise in the morning and you go down at night. And you shall declare them to your children when you walk by the way. 
It's this beautiful creedal statement, a statement of faith. It's like how we use the Nicene or Apostles' Creed. This is what we believe. And before the Israel would have said how we are to live this out, that we are to love the Lord our God in these ways, they would have said what they believe about God, that the Lord is one. And what James is telling us is that that's a good beginning. That statement of faith is a good beginning, but, but it's not enough. Because even the demons believe that. So James is saying that demons actually have right theology. That demons are monotheistic. Do you remember in Mark chapter 5? Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee and he comes off the boat and he starts walking amongst the people. And this man who's possessed by a demon comes up to Jesus. He comes up to Jesus and the demon, speaking through the man, says this. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The demon knew exactly who Jesus was. He made a profession, a statement that was true. You are the son of the most high God. But knowledge doesn't make one a follower. Knowledge doesn't make one a follower. You see, James is challenging the idea that faith apart from works is authentic because simply having the right information, having the right knowledge, being able to recite the right creed well, that doesn't make one a follower. And this is something we need to hear. Because though we live in a time in the West where secularism is, is becoming more and more prevalent, we still live in a place like Roanoke, Virginia, where the Christian understanding of the world is very influential. And so it's very easy for us to think, well, you know, I know about Jesus. He died, he rose again. I know he died for my sins, right? I, I know he's coming back. I've, I've said the creeds. I can say the Lord's Prayer, right? I, I know about Jesus. I mean, isn't that enough? You know, a few weeks ago, if you were here, you heard me uh, describe the day that I became a Christian. So it was the Sunday after Thanksgiving, 1999, at Lander University in Greenwood, South Carolina. That was the day that I became a Christian. But, but here's the thing, if you would have asked me my freshman and sophomore years if I was a Christian, I would have said absolutely. There is no doubt in my mind. Because, you know, I read my Bible sometimes. And sometimes I go to church, and I even go to a PCA church. So that's really, you know, so of course I'm a believer. <laughs> Memorize some scripture, sometimes I pray. Now, if you would have asked me when I was in my high school or middle school or elementary school years, I would have said, absolutely not. Of course I'm not a believer. Right? I didn't grow up growing, going to church. I didn't grow up hearing the Bible. I didn't grow up with any sort of Christian understanding of the world. And so I would have laughed at you. Of course I'm not a Christian. But those two years, yes, I am. I know all about Jesus now. But the truth is, those two years, I was just a dead man walking. I didn't have an active faith. I actually had a dead faith. That's what James calls it. You see, I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. And I imagine that we all know people like this. And it wouldn't shock me if there are even some of us here today who I've just described. 
right? We come to church sometimes. We know about Jesus. We know that he's died and risen again. And we can say those sorts of things. And maybe we've memorized some prayers. Maybe every once in a while when things are really hard, we might pick up a Bible and we might read it. Right? We can espouse with our mouths a particular profession. We can say with our lips what we believe, but our lives actually have no, it has no consequence for our lives. But what James is calling us to do is he's inviting us to, to look at our lives and consider where we stand. I mean, the Apostle Paul did the same in 2 Corinthians. He said to this church whom he loved, this church that he knew, this church that he had written letters, he said, consider the manner of your life and see if you are in, in accord with the gospel. He was inviting believers to the church to consider their life and see if they were really walking in step with the Lord. And that's what James is inviting us to do. And so maybe this is you. But I just want to say, if that is you, if you know all about Jesus, you have all sorts of information, but you do not know him, do not wait. Like, like that day could be today when that changes for you, when, when your works, when your actions, when your words, when your behavior, when your thoughts, they come in line with your profession. That you don't just say you believe, but you actually live in a way that reflects your belief. That could be today. Do not wait. Let us move from having faith that is dead to faith that is active, faith that is alive, because to simply say, I believe, well, well, the demons do that. Let us be weary of presuming upon our faith, and instead let us pursue a true and authentic faith. That's what James calls us to. He doesn't just warn us about inauthentic faith, but he calls us to an authentic faith, a faith that produces good works. Look at verse 18. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, what he's telling us is that our works point to where we have put our faith. And to demonstrate this, he gives us the examples of Abraham and Rahab. So look at verses 21 through 23. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And then verse 25, he says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Okay, so let's think about this. He's saying that Abraham and Rahab, they both believed God. They both trusted in God. They both professed faith in God, but that faith revealed, was revealed in works. So think about Abraham, right? His trust and obedience. In Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God makes promises to Abraham, promises like he will be the father of many nations. And you remember, God brings him out of the tent, and he says, look up at the stars of the sky. And he said that your children will outnumber the stars of the sky. And what we're told is that Abraham looked up and he believed, and his belief was counted to him as righteousness. That's what James is quoting. He believed God, he trusted him, he put his faith in God. But that faith and that trust would be tested because many years later, 
Remember, Abraham is too old to have children, but God miraculously provides a son, Isaac. And many years later, Isaac, he's grown. He's starting to walk. He's starting to talk. He can carry wood. And so up the mountain they go. And Abraham is supposed to put his son to death. Now just think about that for a second. Think about that. This is the child of promise. This is the one that God gave miraculously to Abraham. This is the one in whom the line would come where, where, where nations would be blessed, that kings would come from this line. And now he was supposed to end that line? It wouldn't have made sense, right? It would have been strange. How can God still keep his promises? We're told in Hebrews 11 that Abraham presumed that God would just raise him from the dead. But that's not what God did, did he? In that moment of confusion, Abraham trusted and obeyed God, and God provided the ram. Abraham trusted and obeyed God, and God provided the ram, so Isaac was spared. But, but the point that James is making is that the belief that Abraham once professed when he looked at the stars in the sky was revealed. His faith was shown to be true when he was willing to obey and trust the Lord. And we see the same thing happening with Rahab, right? Rahab, this prostitute, this foreigner, this woman outside of God's people. You remember in Joshua, the, the spies come and they spy out the land of Jericho. And she said to them, we have heard all that the Lord has done. How the Lord has defeated Egypt and the Amorite kings. And then she has this beautiful profession of faith. She says, the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This foreigner professed this wonderful faith in the Lord, but then her faith was demonstrated to be authentic when she protected and cared for the spies. She trusted and obeyed. She trusted and obeyed the God in whom she had professed belief in. That's what Abraham had done had done that's what Rahab had done and that's what James is calling us to do in fact that's what this whole book is really about isn't it I mean it's about trusting and obeying the Lord this one who has redeemed us this one who has saved us that the right response to that redemption is obedience is trust right we've heard calls to trust that the Lord's ways are better than ours and we've called, been called to trust that following God is to live lives as we are meant to live. And we're to obey him by caring for the needy and guarding our tongues and fleeing from sin and loving our neighbor, right? And clothing those who are in need of clothes, as he referenced earlier. Right? That this is what authentic faith looks like. Our works are going to show where we have placed our faith. And that's the thing. That's the thing. Whatever you put your faith in, it will produce works in line with the object of that faith. Or to put it another way, my works will demonstrate where my faith is. So think about it. If you have put your trust, if you have put your faith in, in your reputation, in how others view you, your works are probably going to look like protecting that reputation at all costs. Right? You're going to destroy even other people's reputations so you can make yours look better. Or, or if you've put your faith or your trust in your financial well-being, you're going to hoard. 
and you're going to build up wealth. And as soon as the market takes a little bit of dip, what do you do? And you're calling that planner, right? And you're trying to build it back up and you're trying to make sure that you're going to have enough, right? We're, we're not going to be generous. We're going to hoard our wealth, right? If, if that's where we've placed our faith and our trust. Our works are going to point to where we have put our faith. And there are a million things that we could point to, career and relationship, politicians and security. Our works will tell us where we have put our faith. And so we have to ask, what do our works reveal about our faith? You know, in Acts chapter 4, there's, there's this amazing passage where John and, and uh, Peter are proclaiming the gospel. So they've witnessed the resurrected Jesus. They've heard his words. He's ascended into heaven. And now they've gone about and they're proclaiming the gospel. That Christ has died and he has risen again. And that we are to turn to him for the forgiveness of our sins. And they're called in by the, the religious leaders. And the religious leaders tell them, you guys got to stop doing this. Right? And why? Because people are following them. They're believing this. Right? And so you got to stop this. But Peter and John, what do they say? Well, if it's right in your eyes for us to stop speaking, well, that's up to you. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so they keep proclaiming the gospel. And then we have this incredible statement that's made by the religious leaders. We're told in Acts chapter 4 that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That is a beautiful statement. They had been with Jesus. You see, the religious leaders had seen their actions and witnessed their behavior and heard their words. And what they recognized was that this behavior, that these words, that these actions, they didn't come from Peter and John. They didn't create them themselves. They had come from the one in whom they had been with. That they point to the one in whom they had placed their faith. That it pointed to Christ. You see, friends, Christian works don't point to Christians. Christian works point to Christ. That's where they come from. We don't do these good works. We don't seek to have an authentic faith so that God would love us and God would redeem us and God would shower us with blessing. We do it because he already has. We do it because he has already redeemed us. We do it because he is the one we have placed our faith. And so, friends, let us, let us continue to put our faith in him. And let us turn away from an inauthentic faith and, and cling to a true and authentic one. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, let us let our light shine before others that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let our works be manifest to the world, not so that we would be exalted and not so that we would earn God's favor, but so that they would point to the one who has saved us, the one who has redeemed us, the one in whom we have placed our faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, that is our prayer, and that is our hope, that we would put our faith in you, and that this faith would not just be a faith that we declare with our mouths, but it would be a faith that is seen in our words 
And it would be a faith that is seen in our actions and in our interactions with others and with our minds. And, and that in every single way, every part of our being, we would embody an authentic faith. One that points to you, our God and our King. And so we ask that you would help us to do that. That you would help us so that our faith, our profession of faith, would be in line with our actions, and our actions would be in line with our faith. For the glory of our God, for the goodness of his people, and for the sake of your name, we ask that you would do this. We pray in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. This morning, I'll invite now the ushers to come forward, and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings. <laughs>